So this will be part two. And actually, I uh, shelved a lot of my notes for part two, which were the remainder of the message on the Super Bowl message I gave because I was at the end of that message uh, time-wise, but I had a lot more of meat on the bone I want to share with you. But I thought, I'm probably going to put that till next year. It's more of a Sunday message. But I'm still going to cover a passage that I wanted to cover as part of the Super Bowl message I was giving. But I, but I decided to go more in depth into that message uh, and just worked on it quite a bit more uh, today. And I think it'll be encouraging. You have to think, you know. You come here to be challenged, right? We come here because we want to get close to the Lord. We want to please Him. We, we all ought to be incredibly thankful that He redeemed us. He saved us. Amen. And we should be make sure we're living for Him. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you've got a phone, you can, you know, use that. I like, to, I don't know what it is. I just, I like to feel the paper, you know. But uh, phones are very, very helpful as well. That way, if you, you know, you can call on the Lord and you can read the word and someone starts chasing the freeway, you can call the cops too, so you're good. All right. I would say, I should probably say, well, yeah, I'm not encouraging you to read while you're driving, but I'd be hypocritical because I do that sometimes, so I can't even say that, but be careful. Amen? All right. So uh, this passage right here, last Sunday we got together and we talked about, you know, the... Uh, how we're in the Christian Super Bowl. We're in the ultimate Super Bowl. It blows away earthly, you know, uh, games. And that's the, most, that's the biggest event in American sports, you know, by far and away is the uh, Super Bowl. But uh, it pales, uh, and just by way of comparison, to what we're facing as Christians because we're looking at stakes that are eternal. Amen? And we talked about how the Romans and the Greeks had been celebrating first with the Greeks, the Olympics, every four years for a long time. And uh, I gave the dates and so forth. And what's interesting, I told you there's also these other games, the Ithmian games. These were the games that were kind of Olympian, you know, Olympic-esque, if you will, they, but they were off schedule. They weren't every four years. So people could look forward to those games, you know, uh, uh, who were into sports and so forth. But I also shared with you that Paul's favorite example or illustration seems to be sports. And the longer I've been a Christian, the more I mark up my Bible. See, man, I use it again, over and over and over again. And part of the uh, temptation I'm resisting here—it's a good temptation, but not fitting necessarily—is to go through all those passages that he used on sports. Uh, but I'm not going to do that. We've actually, when we went through First Timothy four, gymnazo—the word we get the word gymnasium from—where he says we don't exercise, right? Uh, uh, you know, that, that physical exercise is good for a little, but spiritual exercise is good for much, not only in this world, but the world to come, amen? And the Greek words he uses are agonizomai, agon, for the word which we get, you know, agonizomai, uh, and the word that is used of the stadiums that they have their sports in. And, and Paul's using that word with gymnazo, from which we get the word gymnasium. Just a lot of words that you might even, just wordage that in the English you would even miss that this is a, uh, not just an exercise illustration, but a sports illustration. But he used them so we would realize, man, if in, a, in a culture, and our culture is very sports-orientated, amen, you have to make sure sports do not come even, not that they're first, that's, that goes without saying, amen, got to make sure they're not first for sure, but you want to make sure they're not in a close second to Jesus, amen, and that our hearts and our minds are preoccupied with serving him first and foremost, and that there's no rival thrones, amen, and that's important for us as believers to make sure that we're on check and we're saying, hey, Christ, you're first in my life, and examine me, Lord, and show me if I'm, if I'm putting something before you, and it's critical that we get it right in this life, and we put him first, and we seek first the kingdom of God, and with our whole heart, soul, our mind, strength, amen, and our neighbor as ourselves. So what's interesting, when you go to Corinth, it's those games that were Olympic-esque, but were off schedule, were actually practiced in Corinth. And that's why Paul writes to the Corinthians using such a powerful sports analogy. Now, you had to follow Caesar as Lord if you were even going to qualify. First and foremost, if you did not follow Caesar as your Lord, you could not be in the Olympics. You had to swear an oath to the statue of Zeus. Okay, You had to be uh, subservient and uh, compliant with recognizing the emperor as Lord. And you had to uh, confess Zeus uh, as your Lord, uh, and he was represented by the emperor and so forth. But it's interesting, 
to get in the race that we're in, who do we have to confess as Lord? Jesus. Jesus, amen. You have to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And the Bible says if you confess him as Lord, right, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, amen. And we have to get on the right, we have to get on the right racetrack because everybody's on a race. Most of the world is racing. They're racing, sadly, to destruction. We've got to get on, we've got to repent, do the U-turn, and say, I want to be in the Lord's race. And that's why Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For broad is the way, broad is the gate, and spacious is the way that leads to destruction. Many go that way, but narrow is the gate, and straight is the way that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So we have to, how do you get in that race? You turn to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, amen? amen. You get serious and say, you know what? I'm not my own God, and I don't want to follow Satan as the God of this world system. And you do a U-turn, you begin to follow Christ. And in Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me and follow me, he must what? Deny himself. Take up his cross. Oh, wait, how often? Take up his cross daily and follow me. So he wants us to go through the narrow gate, the narrow road, and he is the gate. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Amen. He said, I am the gate as well. If you go to John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. He's also the road. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he's the life. I'm the resurrection life. He's, he's our all in all. Amen. So we begin to follow Jesus and we're on the narrow road. Amen. And it's awesome. He gives us a, a, his lamp because we're in a dark world. So his, his word's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And we begin to follow him. And that's so critical that we are on the right path. But I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and check out what Paul says here. Because this is a very, very, very important text. I think this text is not preached enough. And when it is preached, sometimes it's, well, often it's not preached with the force that it should, with which it should be understood. Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we what? An imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be what? The Dachamas are disqualified. And we're going to actually go a little deeper than I probably have in ever in that particular warning because it's so important that we look at it uh, because uh, this text right here is so important because a lot of times people look at this text and they're like, man, Paul's concerned that he's not disqualified. He beats his body down and so forth. And they don't like that because it makes them feel uncomfortable. If Paul could be disqualified, then what hope do I have? Well, Paul is encouraging us and giving us an example. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, not long after this, follow me as I follow Christ. Amen? So we should be looking at this text and saying, what is Paul doing? We need to take our salvation seriously. I mean, when I first got saved, I realized, man, all my friends are lost. All my family is lost. I don't know anybody that's saved. I don't even know what salvation looks like. I was a brand new Christian. I know it's following Jesus. I know I might put my trust in him, but I was like trying to just my, wrap my brain around it. I was brand newly I was saved. I knew what it was to be saved. But I was like, didn't know what it looked like in other people because I didn't know any saved people. But I knew I had to be serious about Jesus because when I'd read his word about knowing him, right, about taking up my cross daily, denying myself, following him, if I save my life, I'll lose it. If I lose it, I save it. If I gain the whole world, I lose my soul. We, I, I realize i got to take it seriously. And we have to take it seriously because so many people are calling themselves Christians today who haven't even entered the race. And others feel like it's a sprint. You just sprint up to the altar call when somebody does some kind of crusade and says, you're saved. And then they think because they made a decision to accept Jesus in their heart that they're saved and there's no race because they're taught you're saved and, you know, you're saved no matter what now, you know. I mean, when Josiah was ministering in the Philippines and we sent him off on his own, he said, send me anywhere, just pray about it. We sent him to the Philippines. 
And we looked at the statement of faith that was given and uh, by the ministry. It was a very reputable ministry. And they said they believe in repentance and everything. It's right there. He calls us up or texts us. He's texting us. We couldn't even talk to him. And he's like, man, they're, they're, they're saying I'm not allowed to preach repentance, you know. And they're telling me just pray with people and let them know that they're saved no matter what they do after that, no matter how they live. And he was horrified and mortified, and we were for him. And my wife was in tears. She said, I can't believe we, we sent him here and so forth. And what did we do? And I'm like, praise the Lord. She's going, what do you mean? I go, praise the Lord. This is such a good thing for him. You know, he's owning his own faith right now. He's taking a stand. And he had an interpreter, right, that would interpret into the, their native language. And if he was going to preach repentance and everything, they would pull him out. If he was preaching, not it's a sprint up to the altar call, but guess what? You get saved, but Jesus said, he that endures the end will be saved. Jesus said, if you got your hand in the plow and you look back, you're not worthy of the kingdom. And he told me he was able to still preach. I go, how'd you do it? Without compromising. He goes, Dad, I just went to the scriptures and just read them. And the guy had to quote the scriptures I was quoting. And the scriptures were clear on the subject that we got to make sure we repent and turn to Jesus. And, you know, I said, praise God. Good job, buddy. It was such a good growing experience for him, you know. Chad usually teaches upstairs, and Chad got a hurt neck, so Lord, we pray you help his neck. But it's neat. He's, I was getting ready to preach this message, and he's getting ready. I'm like, oh, what's going on? And he, oh, yeah, I'm preaching for Chad tonight, you know. I'm like, so he's up there. So it was, it was good for him to have that experience, you know, and, uh, and grow. But this text before us, I believe, is really, really clear, especially when you look at the context. By the way, some will say, ah, it's a race that we're in, but has nothing to do with salvation here. No kidding. I know, Israel, it's like, really? Others, others will say, it has everything to do with salvation, but it's just a bluff. You know, you really can't fall away. Others would say, yeah, well, it has just to do with losing some rewards. Others would say, uh, it's a sincere warning, but if Paul fell away, he was never really saved, you know? All these strange things that do not actually fit the text when you look at it, you know. Um, and we'll, we'll explore some of those a little bit in a little bit more depth in a little bit. And, but Irenaeus, <clears throat> I think the most wonderful of the early church fathers, in my opinion, him and Justin Martyr are my favorites. And, uh, but he says, of this text, he says, this able wrestler, speaking of the Apostle Paul, therefore exhorts us to the struggle for immortality. Not just rewards here, for immortality, that we may be crowned and may deem the crown precious, namely that which is acquired by our struggle, but which does not encircle us of its own accord. It's not like predetermined that we are in a struggle. Paul's in a definite struggle there. Amen? In fact, look what he says here. Let's back up a little bit. Look at verse 24. Or do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? We're going for the prize, amen? amen? So I'm reading this again so these things stick in your brain when we start to exegete this a little bit. Run in such a way that you may win. I mean, you have to be determined. Run in such a way that you will win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we what? An imperishable wreath. An eternal wreath. An eternal crown. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I'm not shadow boxing. I'm going for the knockout. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be what? Disqualified. He makes his body his slave. He doesn't allow his body to make him a slave. In this chapter, he talks about not committing idolatry. I'm sorry, in this, in this book, from chapter 8 until chapter, the end of chapter 10, he's dealing a lot with idolatry and the worship of idols and not causing your brother to stumble and so forth. But he also deals with sexual sin and warns them about it in 1 Corinthians 6 and other things. But Paul was sure to make sure that he didn't allow his body to rule him. And as Christians... We need to make sure that we're not allowing our bodies to rule us. Amen? Amen. We want to make sure that uh, when you have 
passions that are ungodly, that you deny those passions. Amen? That you say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. Right now, today, kids aren't taught that, are they? When they get on social media, they're taught to just go with whatever feelings they have. But the Bible warns about unnatural affections. For instance, in 1 Corinthians, it warns about, in 2 Timothy 3, Romans chapter 1, unnatural affections. Uh, that Because we're fallen, you get all kinds of weird feelings that aren't from the Lord. Temptations and so forth that come in all kinds of different ways. You've got to be very, very careful to make sure that you rule over your body. You don't let your body rule you when you're tempted. And by the way, the body is, you know, it breaks my heart that I see people give in to what's very clearly sin and they allow, they follow their emotions and their feelings or, or their lusts or their passions and they get, and they ruin their marriages sometimes. They ruin their homes, their families for a short little morsel of fun. They give up their, their marriage. They give up their, their family. They give up, like, you know, Esau, his birthright, right? And this is serious stuff. So you want to make sure you rule over your body and that your body's your servant, amen? And that you're not your body's servant. So this is very, very critical. Now, we're going for this imperishable crown, this eternal crown, right? The, the, the crown of life. It's, it's eternal. And Revelation 3.11, Jesus warned, I come quickly, hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Okay? There's a battle for that crown. Now, when I talked about the different positions in regard to this passage, one position is, you know, that, and there's different, you know, our Calvinistic brethren and sisters have different positions. Those who would consider themselves not Calvinists have positions where they believe it's not about salvation, really. Uh, and there's different positions among our, our Calvinist brothers and, and sisters as well uh, that, that differ. Uh, however, it's interesting. Many Calvinists do recognize that. So one position is this, before I get to the, the this would be some mild Calvinists hold this view. Paul's just talking about losing your rewards here. He's not talking about salvation. That this has nothing to do with salvation. This has to do with saved people. Like if Paul becomes reprobate, if Paul allows his body to rule him, he becomes an adulterer, right? Starts sleeping around with women that are married and stuff. He's just going to lose rewards. He won't forfeit his salvation. That's one view. It's pretty popular, believe it or not. A second view is a lot of Calvinists say no. Paul's definitely talking about, about salvation here. Okay, And most exegetes, most Bible commentators, most scholars believe Paul is talking about salvation in the context of this imperishable wreath and understand it to be talking about eternal life. <clears throat> in fact, uh, Charles Hodge. Charles, H Hodge Ch Charles Hodge is one of the most popular Calvinist uh, teachers in the past. He's been dead for some decades now. Uh, but he's, a, he's considered a top Calvinistic uh, scholar. He writes this of Paul. He says, What an argument and reproof is this? The reckless and listless Corinthians thought that they could safely indulge themselves to, every, to, uh, to the verge of every sin. While this devoted apostle considered himself engaged in a life struggle for his salvation. Wow. That's pretty heavy, huh? He said these Corinthians, man, they were playing with sin. They were on the verge of it. Where he says this apostle, the apostle Paul, this devoted apostle considered himself engaged in a life struggle for his salvation. He's right. Paul's talking about salvation here. And he wants to continue in the faith and continue to follow Jesus. So he's right. However, Hodge will go on to say, you know, in his theological view, of course, Paul will persevere because he believes in irresistible grace and he's predestined. He has no choice but ultimately to persevere. He can't choose against that ultimately. So that comes into the other Calvinistic view, which is that the warnings are really, they're not, they could never really happen to you. 
So this would be like Thomas Schreiner, who wrote a book called The Race Set Before Us. Top Calvinistic writer. He's actually very uh, good in areas I agree with him. <laughs> when he's off, I'm like, oh, Thomas, you know. And, uh, but Thomas Schreiner states that these warnings are to keep us on the straight and narrow so we inherit final salvation. I would agree with that. That's right. These warnings are to keep us on the straight and narrow so we inherit final salvation. I would agree with him on that statement. But then he says, but at the same time, these warnings aren't real in the sense that a true believer could actually fall away and forfeit salvation. Now, is that much of a warning? For instance, if I'm a judge and you're guilty of, you know, murder, you know, and these days you get off easy for things like that even in some places. But I'm a judge and I warn you that if you do it again, okay, you've been in the slammer for X amount of years, you're set free now. And if you do it again, you're going to get the death penalty. And he's like, wow, this is a liberal judge. I can't believe he said that. I wouldn't be a liberal judge, by the way. But hypothetically, this is a hypothetical. So, and, I, and he said, you know, if you do it again, then you get the death penalty. And then I say, but actually, I'd never really do that to you. Would he leave thinking that that's a warning? Or yes or no? No. So why would God give us bluffs that aren't true, right? It makes no sense. Because the force of the warning is totally lost when you say it really can't happen. And that's why I think Thomas Schreiner, by the way, gets closest to the true view when I read it for the, from, the, like, from the Calvinist exegetes. He actually, it's really close because he says, yeah, it is about salvation. Yeah, the warnings are very real. They're to get your attention so you will abide, so you won't fall away, so you'll be saved in the end. I'm like, that's exactly what we're saying. <clears throat> He's a very respected commentator, uh, a scholar among the Calvinists. But then he turns around and says, but it could never really happen. <laughs> really interesting, huh? But he's trying to be a good Calvinist, but he's also trying to be a good Bible scholar. But you got to just be a good Bible scholar. Amen? And then just let the Scripture say what it says, you know? So that's another view. Another view is uh, that of, for instance, John Piper. John Piper is one of the leading Calvinists in the world. He's as reputable as R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur among the Calvinist teachers that are popular on the radio and so forth. Uh, and John Piper says this is about salvation. This isn't about rewards. This is about Paul's concern about salvation here. Listen to what he says, though. You, are, you have your spiritual thinking cap on, right? Okay, follow this argument. Because I was told when I was uh, fellowshipping with Brother Nick recently, not too long ago, when I went to uh, Idaho, and we were talking about the Greek word adakamas here that Paul uses that's translated disqualified. And Nick said, man, it's kind of weird. I was reading what John Piper said about that word, and actually he, he says, yeah, he's talking about salvation there. But he says, but Paul's saying that if he did fall away, right, if he was disqualified, he wouldn't be saved. But Piper says, yeah, he says right. he wouldn't be saved. Yeah, he's right at that point. He, but he says, but that would be because he was never really saved in the first place. So Paul is concerned about finishing his race, but if he doesn't, that means Paul was never really saved. Does that sound like Paul? <laughs> Come on. He wrote about half the New Testament, guys. But let me, so it's funny, when he said that later, I went and looked at what Piper said there. I just simply typed in John Piper Adakamas, and boom. I was at the page, and I'm like, ooh, he did say that. He says, he writes, <clears throat> now Paul applies it to himself, this warnings, these warnings, right? He says, and he's talking about take heed when you stand lest you fall and so forth and not, not be disqualified and so forth. <clears throat> he says, now Paul applies it to himself. If I do not take heed, if I give way to some of the impulses of my body, I could find myself on the slippery slope of disobedience, away from Christ and get to the end of my life and hear the judge of the race say, disqualified. So Paul's concerned about that, he's saying. He says, so what Paul is saying is this. I live for the sake of the gospel. I preach it and become all things to all people. Not only that they might be saved, but that I might inherit the same salvation with them. He said the same thing to Timothy. Take heed to yourself, to your teaching. Hold fast to, to that 
For by so doing, you'll save yourself and your hearers. God has called Paul to preach the gospel. Whether he does it or not is evidence of his living relationship to Christ. It is evidence of whether he has been born, born of God and given a new heart of love to Christ. Now, see what he just did? He, now he's shifting from Paul being saved and in the race to falling away from salvation to if Paul gets away from the race, it means he was never really born again in the first place. He was never really in the race in the first place. When you're reading Paul, do you get the idea that he thinks he may never have been in the race? Or do you get the idea that he wants to persevere and finish the race? Come on, let's be honest. Okay? Come on, it's Wednesday night. We've got to think theology together. And we've got to think with what the, we got to look at what the heavyweights are saying and say, okay, what's the scripture say? Or does it match up with what they're saying? Although I want to say this, I appreciate that Piper is emphasizing that you need to finish the race. Amen? Because some say, once you go to the altar, you finish the race, you're saved no matter what you do. Piper's not saying that, okay? So let's give him some credit for that, amen? Because some people just say, they all, oh, they all teach. No, they don't all teach full-blown license, okay? I read this, and before he makes that point, sounds a lot like us, amen? It sounds exactly like things that we would say. Okay, he's on the right track until he goes off, you know? So it's interesting. He says... I want to read that quote again so you'll understand what he's saying. That last part. God has called Paul to preach the gospel. Whether he does or not is evidence of his living relationship to Christ. Well, I'm asking the question. Was he preaching the gospel prior to this when he writes this? Obviously. So when he's preaching that would show he had a relationship with Christ. Amen? But then he goes on to say, it is evidence of whether he has been born of God and given a new heart of love to Christ. Is that what Paul says? If I fall away, it's evidence I was never really saved. I was never really in the race. I never really preached the gospel in the first place. No. No. That's not what Paul's saying. But what he's doing now with the text, he's reading his Calvinism to it. Because Calvinism teaches if you claim to follow Christ, but then you don't follow Christ, right? And you don't return to Christ, you were never saved in the first place. Is it true that people that fall away were never really children of God? Was the prodigal son just a fake child of his father, yes or no? No, he's a real, real son, amen? Okay. Was Peter not really a true follower of Jesus when he denied the Lord three times, yes or no? Of course he was. And then he goes on to write. <clears throat> I haven't read this part yet. And therefore, what hangs on Paul's running in the path of obedience and is fighting the fight of faith is the reality of his own standing in grace, his own participation in the gospel. If he quit running, if Paul quit running, he says, if he said, I've had enough of this life of service, I'm through with following the path of obedience to my heavenly call, I'll try to hang, out on, I'll try to, hang on to Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, but I'm done with doing what he says. If Paul quit like that, Piper writes, and never came back, he would be lost. Well, that's true. But then he writes this. He would not get the prize of salvation. That's true. He writes, He would be disqualified from the race and sent away in shame like a sprinter guilty of unlawful steroids. That's true too. But he wouldn't get salvation. And he's writing everything he says except that Paul would prove that he was never saved in the first place. Brothers and sisters, when did Paul start his race? You remember? He was on a road. He, on the road to Damascus. Who appeared to him? Jesus. Amen? He said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Amen? Was Paul saved? Yes or no? You think he was saved or you know Paul was saved? If Paul wasn't saved, what are we reading half the New Testament for? It was by Paul, right? So Paul was definitely saved. Amen? There's nothing in the text that suggests that Paul may have not have been saved if he fell away that we know Paul was never saved in the first place, and Paul would think he was never saved. No. <laughs> Paul talks about his salvation over and over again. The apostle Peter talks about how Paul is gifted, and he wrote scriptures, Peter says, in 2 Peter 3. They recognize Paul was saved, amen? 
If Paul fell away and became a docomos, it wouldn't be because he was never saved. It's because it was simply because he did not finish the what? The race. We cannot read into the text. We can't read our theology into the text. See what happens when you bring your theology to the text and you look through, the, you look at the text with Calvin glasses. You put your Calvin spectacles on and you look at the text. You can't do that. You can't put any theological prism over the text. You have to let the text constantly and every day shape your faith. Amen? Shape your convictions. Amen? By the way, sometimes that word adakamas is used of that which is counterfeit. wasn't real in the first place. Sometimes that word adakamas is used of that which loses, is rejected because it loses its value. It was used of coins often that lost, you know, their gold or their silver over the years and no longer had the weight to be qualified as, you know, coins that were valued to be traded with. And they were called a docamas. Doesn't mean they weren't coins in the first place. The context has to be on the word, the way the word docamas has to be used on the basis of, you know, the context is king. Amen. In this context, Paul's talking about salvation, which is what we're going to get into a little bit. But he's definitely also talking about him being saved. He's in the race, amen? And he's, he's, he's while he writes in the ra- about being in the race right now, at this point, he says he beats his what? Body down, amen? He submits to Christ. Do non-believers beat their body down and submit to Christ? Yes or no? No, he's talking as a saved person. He's talking about his body getting the ascendancy over him and being ruled by his body and no longer following Christ. Are you with me? That's the context. So I want to give you seven proofs because others would say, well, this really isn't about salvation. And that's what Piper is doing is he's trying to say, hey, no, this is about salvation, guys. It's not just about reward. It's not about rewards here in chapter 9. Okay, that's in 1 Corinthians 3. He talks about rewards, but it's about salvation. And I applaud him and my Calvinist brothers and sisters who say, yeah, it's about salvation. But you have to realize it's a very, very real warning. And when Hodge says, Charles Hodge, this is, he's, he's wrestling with his salvation, you know, he's right. Number one, my first evidence would be the broader context of 1 Corinthians. He's dealing with them in Corinth, Corinth about those who are Concerned are those that would, those that were in Corinth that were given into idolatry, that were given into sexual sin, and for those who would say, well, he would just lose his rewards. What does Paul say? So let's say Paul no longer beats his body down, no longer denies himself, and just just goes with whatever thought comes to his mind, and he goes to the bathhouses and has sex with men, other men, and starts doing all that stuff. With regard to that, would Paul just lose rewards, as some say? Well, listen to this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. You tell me what you think. Paul warns the Corinthians, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, if you live like that, do you just lose some rewards? Or do you fail to enter the kingdom, inherit the kingdom of God? You fail to inherit the kingdom of God. Now some might say, well, if you live like that, then you were never really a brother. You are never really saved because a saved person couldn't dare fall into those things. Which would contradict, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that I just quoted from, and go to verse 15. A few verses later, look what Paul says. He warns the Corinthians... In verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are what? Members of Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. He's warning them against the men, mostly the men, going after temple prostitutes and sleeping with them and because they're part of the body of Christ. Amen? And he says a little bit later, right after this, know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's warning them so these are warnings. Are these warnings to non-believers or Christians that they can get involved in sexual sin and be disinherited from God's kingdom? Absolutely. 
So my first point is, before you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, right, or chapter 9, and he warns about finishing the race and making sure he beats his body down, he's already let them know that if you allow your body to succumb to adultery and, and all this sexual sin and stuff, guess what? You are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. And he warns that true believers could fall into that, verses 15 through 20. Know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't take the member of the Christ and make it uh, one with a prostitute. The two shall become one. He quotes the, the, the scripture on that. And he's, this is serious stuff. So when you get to 1 Corinthians 9, he doesn't want to be disqualified. Is he talking about just losing some rewards? Or is he talking about inheriting the kingdom? Inheriting the kingdom. Number two, the immediate context. The immediate context is about salvation. So what Paul is, he's been called to preach the gospel on the road to Damascus, amen? Now you don't want to get this confused with works because Paul has to preach the gospel if he's going to fulfill his call, amen? And he's not being saved based on how many people he witnesses to. However, since he's been called by Jesus, if he decides, I'm not going to obey Jesus anymore, I'm not going to be a witness anymore for Jesus, I want nothing to do with saying the gospel anymore, that would show that his heart is where? In a bad place, and he's not walking in the faith. Faith that works is what? Dead. Dead. The issue is always about being saved by grace through what? Faith. faith. We're not saved by anything we do. We're saved by the unmerited favor, the grace of God. Amen? What Christ has done on our behalf on the cross, he paid for our sins on the cross. Amen? He died for our sins. He rose again and conquered the grave. By grace you save through faith, that not of yourselves the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we're saved by faith in Christ. Amen? But Paul says in Galatians, when he says, uh, talks about this salvation by grace through faith over and over again, he says in Galatians 5, 6, faith works through love. Okay? In the Greek, it's energized by love. Faith has, true faith has fruit. Amen? And you'll know them by their fruit. So if, if Paul, uh, if, if somebody goes into a life of sexual sin and refuses to repent, it's showing that they're not having what? Faith at that moment. Now I'm not saying, well, if you've ever fallen, man, you've lost your salvation. We don't teach that you just lose your salvation and gain your salvation. Lose it, gain it, lose it, gain it, lose it, gain it. Although Paul did say, in the bigger scheme of things, in Romans, the branches that were broken off could be grafted back in again. But we just don't believe that's like this daily occurrence, right? So what, what are we saying? Paul's saying, there's a, there's a road that we're on. We're on the narrow road. It's a race. It's an obstacle course. You take up your cross. You follow Christ. You have bumps. You continue to go forward. doesn't mean you'll never fall. The question is, everybody's going to stumble. The question is, do you stay down? You know, these things are written that you do not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, amen? So it's imperative that we understand, you know, it, you're going to fall in the mud. It's one thing to fall in a pigsty. It's another thing to hang out with the pigs and stay there and live there and roll around in the mud. You can fall in the mud, you need to get back up. It's dangerous to fall in the mud because you might end up staying there sometime. So you don't want to flirt with sin. But we're talking about rolling in the mud and staying there. And read 1 John if you doubt what I'm saying. 1 John, it talks about those who practice sin, right? They don't stand born of God, perfect tense. You know? If you say that you know him, but you're not following him, you're walking in darkness, you're a liar and the truth is in you. That's 1 John, man. You can't be following Jesus, claim to follow Jesus, not truly following him. Okay? So number two, the immediate context Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The immediate context. Now we're looking at point number two. Point number one was a broader context about salvation in Corinth. And when he's talking about beating his body down, he's concerned about going, you know, living that wicked life. And he says, give himself an example. I'm concerned, Paul says. But number two, the immediate context, not just the broader context, the immediate context now. In chapter 9, Paul's called to preach the gospel. But if Paul started refusing to preach gospel, he'd know, Jesus, I'm not obeying you anymore. And he continued, he refused to do it anymore because that was a specific call to give him as apostle. Would he be in the faith if he's in rebellion to Jesus? No, it's the opposite of faith, right? Well, look at what he's talking about here. Chapter 9, look what he says in verse 16. Chapter 9, verse 16. 
But if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. But he says what? For what? Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Hmm. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I'm, woe is judgment. Well, why? Verse 23. Now look at verse 23. Right before verses 24 through 27, which we've looked at, look at verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that what? I may become what? A fellow partaker of it. In other words, I'm completing my call. I'm going forward in God, continuing the faith with the call that's been given to me because I want to be a fellow partaker of the gospel I'm preaching to others. Amen? That's why a little bit later he says, if I don't do, you know, if he doesn't do this after preaching to others, I myself will be disqualified. So he wants to be a fellow partaker of the gospel, which I think is fascinating. He's saying that he wants to obtain what the promises, the, go- the gospel's promises, which is salvation. The Bible says uh, in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul wants to be a partaker of that salvation. He's talking about the final salvation now in this context. He wants to share in the gospel. That's why he continues to run the race of eternal life. So number two, number one, the broader context is Paul is concerned about inheriting salvation and not going and living a wicked lifestyle. Number two, the immediate context before you get to verses 24 through 27 is Paul wants to make sure that he doesn't get woe pronounced upon him because he refuses to preach the gospel. He says no, he preaches it because not only does he want to see other people saved, but he wants to make sure he's a partaker of the promise of the gospel. Amen? So so number two, the context, the broader context is salvation. And the immediate context is what? Salvation. Are you with me? Yes, sir. Okay. I'm encouraging you guys because, and you can pick up a Bible commentator, Terry. You can read a commentary online. Okay. I'm telling you right now, 99% of them or more don't go this deep into the subject that we're talking about with verses 24 through 27. So you should, I'm just saying this to encourage you to say, wow, this is stuff I should really learn and know and understand so I can be really strengthened in what the Word of God says. And that way I do know what the genuine is. So when a counterfeit comes, I can discern it. Amen? Amen. In this regard and every other regard. Number three, what's the prize? Look at verse 24 again of chapter 9. Do you not know that those who run a race all run, but only one receives what? The prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perish wreath, but we what? and imperishable. That wreath that they're going for is perishable. Paul wants the prize. What's the prize? Not temporary being crowned, but eternal crown, eternal life. Amen. Well, how do you know he's talking about salvation there, eternal life? Because we just looked at verse 16 and we looked at verse 23. It came on the heels of him wanting the promise of salvation. Amen. And that's the prize. That's number three. Number four. The crown that the New Testament writers talk about when they're talking about this eternal crown over and over again is eternal life. Eternal life. And James, remember what James says in James 1.12? Remember he says, he tells them, uh, he, he gives them this beautiful promise. He says, blessed is the man who, what? Perseveres, endures perseveres under trials, for once he has been approved, right? Not a docamas, which means to be disapproved, literally. But once he's approved, after he's persevered, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And in the Greek, it's the crown which is life. And then it's interesting because Jesus gave a warning to the church at Smyrna. He says, Do not fear any of those things that you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast you to prison, and you shall be tested for ten days. He says, Be faithful until death, it's the end of the race, and I will give you the what? Crown of life. He that overcomes will not be hurt by the second death, which is the lake of fire. So eternal life is contrasted with the second death and the lake of fire. Don't fear anything you're about tr- you're suffering because they're going to go into prison, man. And they're going to be pr- put in prison for 10 days in Smyrna. And they're faithful servants of Christ. They can think, man, I've been suffering for Jesus in this terrible culture. How come he's allowing me to be in prison? I can't believe it. I have to go to prison for 10 days. 
And then they're being threatened to be beheaded under Roman law because not conf confessing Caesar is Lord that the church of Smyrna. And they could say, you know what? Shine this, man. Oh, I'll, okay, I'll confess him as Lord. I'll deny Christ. I'll spit on the cross or I'll do whatever. And that would be wicked. That would be horrific. But at, there at Smyrna, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the, what? Crown of life. In the Greek again, it's the crown which is life. And he that overcomes will not be hurt by the, what? Second death. So the crown of life is contrasted with the second death. By the way, in James, the crown of life is also contrasted with death. He says, let no one say, when he's tempted, he's being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone with evil. But each one is tempted when he's enticed and carried away by his own desires. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. In other words, are you going to choose the life road or the death road? We're not talking about falling short in your walk with Christ and getting back up and saying, Lord, have mercy on me and getting cleansed. We're talking about what road you choose to be on. Those that are in the narrow road, yes, you're going to slip. You're going to struggle from time to time, sometimes more than others. But, man, but don't roll around in the mud and stay there and get on the broad road. Amen? So in this context, it's the perishable wreath is being contrasted with the crown of life or the imperishable crown. Are you with me? Imperishable means eternal. It's like the crown of life. Of, really, it's the crown of eternal life. So that's the fourth argument is that we're talking about, by the way, all these arguments strengthen each other, by the way. Do you notice that? Because when he's talking about the imperishable wreath, the context again is what? The prize, which is what? That I might obtain the promise of the gospel. Salvation. That's the whole context. Obtaining the promise of the gospel. That's why verse 23 is so important. And I pointed out verse 16 before. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I pointed out, you know, after I preached to others, I myself could be disqualified. I pointed that out. But I don't think I've ever emphasized verse 23. And I thought, I need to go a little deeper because verse 23, he says, I do this so I'll be a partaker of the, 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 the gospel. Salvation. And that's why the prize is salvation. That's why the impersonal wreath is salvation or the crown of life. Number five. Number five. He says, and let's, let's read verse 27. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be what? Ooh, I heard a lot of different words out there. NASB is disqualified. Okay, that's a good translation. He's on the race of salvation. Be disqualified would be a bad thing. Amen? There's a couple other uh, translations I heard out there. Joseph, which one did you say? Cast away. Cast away. I believe that's the uh, King James translation right there. Don't want to be cast away, you know. Uh, anybody else re say something else when I said that? Disqualified. disqualified, the New King James? Okay, New King James, disqualified. Now, this is very interesting because, and we've looked at this Greek word, but we're going to go a little deeper than we have, is the word, I'm looking at the clock, man, and uh, sometimes it's 1015, right? And sometimes it's 8.30. And sometimes I'm like, does it mean 8.15? Or is it 8.30? That's right. So it was, it's 8.30. Because I always look at the last two numbers, not the first one. And I always got to remind myself. I'm like, praise the Lord. Otherwise, man, I do not want to do part three on the Super Bowl. Uh, even though I think this is such. Are you guys getting into the word with me tonight? Okay. I love that you guys love it, you know. I mean, you can be bowling tonight and stuff, but come on. This is so much richer. Watch somebody say, you were preaching about me. I went bowling that night. I would say, I had no clue that you get, that was your, you just started a bowling league, bro. I love you, man, but we just don't want you to be disqualified. No, I was kidding. That wouldn't disqualify you. That would not disqualify you, unless you weren't following Jesus anymore. But, uh, so it's interesting here. Adakamas. Now the word, take the A off, which in the Greek is the letter alpha. You know, just to have the word dakamas. Dakamas it means to be approved, to be qualified, to pass the test. It's a good word. You'd want to hear, you know, that you were, you know, you passed the test and so forth. But remember, the alpha before a word typically negates the word. It's not dakamas. The word here is ah. We don't say a dakamas because the alpha is pronounced with an ah. 
We don't know how they pronounced it in the first century. Well, that's not how you, well, I always say, guys, you know, I mean, I like to pronounce the words the best I can, but I don't get upset when somebody says, you know, edokami or whatever. I'm like, okay, we, 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 man, I'm getting off on a tangent. I don't need to get on here now. But it's interesting because like, for instance, you have the Omicron and you have the, uh, you have the Omega, okay? And Omega is the letter O, right? The O sound, O, and it sounds just like we say Omega, O. So when you see the Omega, which is like a W, it makes an O sound. But when you see Omicron, which is also like an O, well, if you're transliterating it, that is, Omicron makes it more of the ah sound, right? But same with alpha. Alpha kind of takes the sound alpha, ah, you know, or ah. So ah, uh, dakamas is ah, alpha, dakamas. You got all the next two O's after that, which is only two O's, in the transliteration is, is uh, Omicron's. So it's a dakamas. So that word ah, dakamas, when you put the ah first, it says, the, it means the opposite. So we, and the way I illustrate this is somebody who believes in God, we would call them, we'd say that person is a, a theist. You're a theist because you believe in God. Theism means the belief of God. But if you don't believe in God, you're called a what? Atheist. You want to really mess with someone, you mean atheist. <laughs> Alpha is Fred, you know. I don't get too technical here, but. Or agnostic would be, gnostic would be uh, someone who has faith or belief. Not the Gnostics, but. You know, an agnostic, which is closer to the sound of the, the, uh, the alpha, is someone who doesn't have knowledge. I don't have any, I don't know, I have anything about what I believe, you know, agnostic. So when we see the word adakamas, it means it was something, someone who's disqualified, doesn't pass the test. So this is a very interesting word. And I mentioned it's used of coins that are taken out of this, <clears throat> nope, not, 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 no, not worthy, it's cast away. Right, Joseph? Coins cast away. Some would say, oh, you know what? Uh, that word, adakamas. I've heard this for years, ever since I was a new Christian. Drove down the radio one time, heard somebody talking about the meaning of Paul's word. When he, they don't even think they were talking about the Greek word, adakamas. They just said, well, Paul doesn't want to be the castaway. What he means there is he doesn't want to be like a broken pot. Because a broken pot could be a adakamas. But a broken pot you would still save. And you'd put up in your cupboard. So Paul just doesn't want to be put aside in the cupboard where he's not used anymore, but he's still saved. Is that what, how Paul uses the word of Dakamas? So what I wanted to do is I want to say, okay, and I did this as a younger Christian. I want to look at how does Paul use that word? Where is that word used in the New Testament? And I found out that, guess what? It's only used about eight times, including right here, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Paul says, I beat my body down, so after I preach the gospel to others, I myself would not be disqualified, a Dakamas. It's used seven other times. All by the Apostle Paul. And every single time Paul uses it elsewhere, including to the Corinthians, is used of being reprobate to Christ, being condemned, being rejected, guys. To me, this is the strongest, along with the context, evidence that Paul is concerned in making sure he inherits final salvation. Do you want those examples where they're at? I've shared a couple with you before, but I'm going to give you every one of them pretty quick. The first and most important one, I believe, is 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're not going to turn to all of them, but I'm going to turn to a couple of them. But I want you to turn because he's talking to the Corinthians again, who received this letter before they received 2 Corinthians. And some of these guys are living wicked lives, right? And Paul's already warned them that, hey, if, you, if you're involved in sexual sin, you refuse to repent. You won't inherit God's kingdom, right? And then he warns them, that, hey, I beat my body down, so after I preach to others, I won't become a docomos, but some of them haven't repented. And look what he says to them. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, or chapter 12 first, and look what he says here. Now, I've shared this with you before, but I'm going to share a few that I haven't shared with you before, but I dare not, I dare not ignore this for the people who haven't seen this or those. It's always good to be reminded to. He says in verse 21, in his next letter to them, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have not sinned in the past. I'm going to cry over them. Why? And not what? They've sinned in the past. Those who have sinned in the past, and they have not what? They have not repented. They're rolling around in the mud. They're still living, you know, in sin and rebellion to God. 
They, they've not repented of their what? The impurity, immorality, and sensuality, which they have what? What's the last word? Practice. You see, this is not, you don't think, oh, I followed short. <laughs> Was I a docomus? No, if you're following Jesus now and you've asked for forgiveness, you're cleansed. Amen? We're talking about those who are practicing rebellion. And look what he says about them and to them in verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you what? Fail the test. Guess what three words are trans... These three words, fail the test. Guess what Greek word they're translating. What is it? Adakamas. Absolutely. So in verse 5, in verse 5, he's warning those who are practicing sin, refuse to repent. He's warned them that he beats his body down so he's not a docomos. And if you live like that, you want to hurt God's kingdom. And they still haven't repented. And Paul says, you need to, you need to examine yourself to see your faith. Test yourselves. Jesus is in you unless you are a docomos. In other words, to be a docomos, according to Paul in Corinthians, means to be without Jesus. Are you with me? Guys, so important. How important is it? It has eternal consequences. Because what if I was teaching you guys? You guys, try, to, don't, try not to cheat on each other's wife. Try not to take somebody else's wife, man. You know, and, and, try, and try not to kill people, you know. It's not good. It's wrong. But you know what? If you do, you know, you're going to lose some rewards. Man, if you don't break that relationship, you might lose some rewards in heaven. You're thinking, I'd still go to heaven, though. Still be happy forever. There's no tears up there. It'd be a joke preaching, man. It'd be actually a sad lie, you know? And that's what millions of people are taught. That's why I preach the way I do. And when I'm talking about the race, this is what the race is about. So when I preach, i got to preach what the Word says. Amen? And I also have to preach in the, in the context of the times in which I live. In the times in which I live, everybody tries to wiggle out of these verses. Many people. Guess where this word is again? And now I'm going to give you a little quiz, a little test. The one I'm going to read to you this time is in Romans chapter 1, where it's talking about those who are given over to depraved mind, to homosexuality, who are worthy of death. Paul uses it here too. Isn't this interesting? And I'm going to, and when you, well, when I read this, you let me know if you think I struck the word in the English. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, talking about the homosexuals, any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. It's right there. It's, called, it's, the, it's, it's used of the homosexuals' depravity. He's using it in a negative way. And these are people, he goes on to say, uh, those to, uh, a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Verse 32, God uh, he says that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Is Paul using this as a word of just not that big of a deal? No, it's used of homosexuals who are perishing, of being given over to a rejected or depraved mind. He uses it in 2 Corinthians of those who are without Christ. He uses it of what he could potentially become in chapter 9, verse 27, as we've seen. Now guess what? It's also in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Remember 2 Timothy 3? It prophesies about the end days. Know this, <coughs> excuse me, know this, that in the last days, terrible times will come. King James, perilous times will come. Remember, we lovers of their own selves, right? It goes on, right? And then he says this in verse 8. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind. And now it's not depraved, right? That, that word's another Greek word. But then he says, rejected in regard to the faith. Guess what word is adakamas there? Rejected. Rejected. Just like the coin would be rejected. Oh, it's no good anymore. The next one is in Titus 1.16. I'm giving you every, every, all the references. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient. It's not either of those words. And worthless for any good deed. Adakamas is translated worthless there. They profess to know him, but by their works they deny him. It's used over and over again for people who are not following Christ, who have been rejected by God. Ah, it's in Hebrews 6. 
And I used this reference not too long ago, but I'll just quote the verse, verse 8. It's talking about those who after they receive the Holy Spirit, it says, been partakers of the Holy Spirit, right? And, and all these wonderful experiences in Jesus, but then they fall away. He says, of them, for the ground drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled. It receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless. Adakamas, rejected. It's worthless. King James Version is rejected, right? It translates that, rejected, worthless, NASB. And not that the NSB is worthless. I mean, it's worthless in the NSB. And, and close to being cursed, close to being cursed and ends up being burned. Paul uses, or when I say it's, they're all by Paul, this could be the exception if Paul didn't write Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews for sure. But it's used again, uniformly throughout the New Testament of being damned, of being rejected, of being reprobate, of being without Christ, of being one who denies Christ by your works. Number six, Okay, and I'm looking at that clock. And I'm gonna, if I go through the text and read it all the way through, we won't get there. I'm gonna get done at 8.30. So, but let me say this of number six. The ongoing, go to 1 Corinthians 9, okay? 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be, what? Disqualified. See the chapter 10? There's no chapter breaks in the original. The very next word is the word for. He connects it with what he just said. And look what he says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. It's talking about when they were delivered from their slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh, who was a picture of Satan. Egypt's a picture of the world. They were set free, amen, by the blood of the Passover lamb, just like we've been set free. And they were on their way to the promised land, just like we are, Amen. The race that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he now uses a corresponding example of the Jews who said about their race after they were cleansed. Yep, it's typology of salvation. That's right, uh, Israel. Verse 2. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. Remember the manna from heaven? A picture of Jesus. Amen, the bread of life. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was who? Christ. They were partaking of Christ. Nevertheless, verse 6, with most of them, God was not well pleased, and they were laid low in the wilderness. Why does he bring that up? Verse 6, now these things happened as what? Examples for us so that we would not what? Crave evil things as they also craved. In other words, guess what? I beat my body down so I don't go after those evil things and I make it my slave. So I don't fall and become a docomas. And guess what? That's exactly what happened to the Israel. So many of them. And they were put to death before they entered into the promised land. And he uses that as a picture of salvation. The author of Hebrews does. Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 talks about entering into that rest, that eternal rest that we all should be looking forward to. And what does he say? He talks about, he swore, that, uh, he swore by his name, right, that his wrath, by his wrath, that they would not enter into the promised land. And we will not enter into his rest as a picture of eternity. But he goes in chapter 4, verse 11 to say, be diligent to make sure that you enter into that rest. And Jude, verse 6 says, after God saved them out of Egypt, he later destroyed those who did not believe. And he's using that as a warning of what could happen to us. And then he goes on, I don't have time to read the whole thing, verses 7, 8, 9, 10, about giving examples of how God destroyed different people for different sins that they continue to practice. Do not practice rebellion against God. And then my seventh evidence, my seventh evidence is verses 12 and 13. Paul's conclusion at this point, there's more conclusion, but look at verse 12. Therefore let him who thinks he what? Stands, take heed lest uh, that he does not what? Take heed that he does not fall. In other words, guess what? Do any of you think you stand in Christ? Then this is to you. I think I stand. This is to me too. Paul thinks he stands and he says, I'm in trouble if I don't follow. Let, therefore... Therefore, on the basis of the fact that not only do I beat myself down, Paul says, but that people were wiped out before they entered into eternal life. Right? It's not just a hypothetical, is it? He gives real examples. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he what? Fall. That can happen to every one of us. But some people, no, nah, I can't fall away. No, nah, it's impossible. Once I'm saved, I'm always saved. That's nowhere in the Bible. Jude does say something like that. He says, once he saved them out of Egypt. 
Later he destroyed them. Not once saved, always saved. Once saved, later destroyed if you turn away. I say once saved, not always saved. I say once saved, abide in Christ. Amen. Amen. Once saved, abide in Christ. Well, I want to end with some encouragement. Verse 13, the hope of perseverance. No temptation is overtaking you, but such as, such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Amen? But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. None of you have to fall. None of us have to fall. Amen? God loves us. He will always give us the strength and the power to persevere as long as we look to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Keep looking to Jesus. And right now, I'm looking at the clock. It's 8.30, and we're going to pray. Can you all stand up? Father God, we love you so much. And we thank you so much for your great goodness. And Father, we praise you. We pray that you keep each and every one of us. And Father, your word says that you do keep us, Father. Your word says that your son is at your right hand and he intercedes for us, Father. Your word says that we are kept by your power. In 1 Peter 1.5, that we're kept by the power of God through faith. Father, we praise you, but we know it's through faith. just like we're saved through faith. Help us to continue in the faith, Father. We thank you that neither height nor depth nor principality or power, no man can pluck us out of your hands, Father. We thank you that we have assurance in Christ and that you are able to make us stand, Father. But we pray, Father, that we recognize that just as you provide the way of escape so we can endure temptation, you call us, Father, to do our part and to take heed when we stand. And look to you in faith and to your son in faith. And so we may be partakers of the gospel. And we know we're only saved by grace through faith, Father. For your word says, without faith it's impossible to please you. So help us continue in the faith, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.